Hello and welcome to Artbox DNV. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I sat down with Joanna Koahara Eleno via Zoom call. Being exposed to visual arts at an early age led her to her own art practice, curation, and art advisory. Joanna currently curates for the Seattle NFT Museum. We talk about that and the difficulties of curation and art devising, why and how she got into NFTs, and advice she would give to other artists and herself. So sit back and relax and enjoy the interview. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. You sound great. Thank you. So uh, thank you for doing this first and foremost. Of course. Let's go over some of these questions real quick that I'm going to ask. The first question is basically, who are you? What do you do? How you do it and why? You know, this is because you do artwork as well. So please bring that up. And also you're curating, you know, bring that up too. Because that's what's yeah. all that motivated you up to this moment in time. So let's 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 go down that path and kind of think I of it as a timeline. Mean... For me, that's already really tough because oh. I kind of had such a, an interesting upbringing because my mom wasn't very autistic, hmm. despite her mom being very autistic. Yeah. And she always wanted me to read and learn from a very young age. So she put me in violin classes when I was three. Oh, wow. Uh, she, she was reading me books that I would point at in book fairs, even though I didn't know how to read. I was like, oh, I like that one. And she picked this one up, which was Kandinsky's kind of catalog resume. So it spoke about his life and his approach to art. And I was I was hooked. From that book onwards, I was hooked into art and art history. And my mom would read me these books when I was little. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's it makes me sound like a, a bit of a douche. But yeah, when I was little, no. I was like, yeah, Kandinsky is my favorite painter, but I didn't know any others, you know, so. Well, that I was, mean, he was, that was your like first introduction. Like, yeah, so that's. Yeah, he, he was my favorite. And when I was little, my the school I went to also was very oriented to the arts. So they would let us, they would teach us about some of the main modern artists like Monet and Picasso. And they would make us do these drawings where we'd look at these famous paintings and they'd make us draw them or copy them or try to like have an approach. And we were like five. I look back yeah. at this and I'm like, wow, they, they really were exposing us to really high quality art from a really young age. And I made this drawing, which apparently was a hit. And they made it the school's final showcase uh, pamphlet, like the cover of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you were five? Yeah. Man, that's... And it was like with pastels. Yeah. I know. Wow. <laughs> I was that's really little impressive. and I was obsessed with drawing. I was always drawing or singing or playing the violin or doing something. So I did not take after my mother, who was an incredible sportswoman. Yeah. She was... <laughs> Captain of the national um, volleyball team. And meanwhile, I was like captain of my box of pastels. I was like, (laughs) oh, wow, look at this. (laughs) I'm Um, the captain of this box of pastels. I like that. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I thought it was a huge deal as well. So I kind of always grew up very artsy. I was always drawing. I never stopped drawing. Like I'm doodling as we speak yeah it's just something i can't stop doing it's more of a compulsion than a vocation at this point yeah i hear um, you on that front yeah right you, you can relate oh it's yeah it's relatable 
but it's just interesting to me that I make art just because I kind of use it as a therapeutic outlet rather than something I reckon I can make money out of. Yeah. Because, you know, I got into the art world and I started doing curation straight after my master's. Like I did my master's in culture policy and management, my bachelor's in architecture, hated architecture. No offense to any architects listening. Yeah, um, uh, sorry, Benji. It just wasn't for me. I really admire every architect. I love architecture. I love architects, but I did not enjoy um, the whole rendering and well, a very important aspect of architecture. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and having to use, uh, what is it, uh, AutoCAD and uh, oh my Vector Works. Revit. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, I was not into that. I was like, if I have to do this for the next 10 years, I will probably end up in a ditch you know i don't myself. yeah it's not good but it was interesting that i would see all of this art and i i felt it was amazing and i would look at emerging artists but i would look at my own and i'd be like no <laughs> you know because you always end up being more critical of yourself anyway oh yeah um, that's true Right. Yep. So um, having that background in architecture and especially in the UK, it's a bit toxic. Um, the culture where you have to present your work to your professors just for them to say everything that's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know. It's, it's you have to. Uh, oh, I know that. I know that feeling very well. <laughs> yeah, it's like terrible. And um, it made me a very good saleswoman, though. And Whenever I worked in galleries, I was incredible at sales because I felt like I needed to like sell this work because if I had to repeat a year in architecture school, I would drop out. Oh, yeah. I was like, I'm not doing this twice. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> um, so that's how you segue so, into curation? Yeah, I basically like, I've always had this love for art history. And after I did my bachelor's and I went to London to do my master's, I was like, I want to do an internship in the art world. I want to see whether this little, um, you know, side hobby passion of mine is worth pursuing. And I was also like sneaking into art history lessons at um, a leading university in art history, but no needs to know that because need to know um, what if you I, saw me then no you didn't what are you talking about uh, i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> exactly you have no idea no one no knows. but i ended up going to a lot of auctions at sotheby's i ended up doing a bunch of stuff at sotheby's like learning courses i ended up befriending um, lots of people in the gallery circuit in the uk just because i go to these places and i was there yeah. I wasn't doing anything in particular. I was just there and I would just start talking to people because I'm Portuguese and apparently that's not very common in London. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because people don't really talk. Yeah. Well. <laughs> you know, they're very um their personal space and their personal bubble is very important. And I tend to respect that, but in gallery events I was like, you know what? I'm gonna break your bubble. Let's talk about this. What do you think about this work? And I befriended really important people and really intelligent people who kind of helped guide me through the art world. And once I finished my master's, I went back to Lisbon and I was like, I want to kind of do something in the Lisbon art scene because it's a bit sleepy. I wouldn't hmm. say it was dead, but it was sleepy. Yeah. It, it needed some shaking up. 
So I went around calling investors and I was like, you guys, if you have a little space, you know, I have an idea. I have a listen. Hear me out. This is great. You can activate your building, which was um, a term I kind of made up on a phone call with one of them. And I was like, you can activate this building. I don't know if it's a thing, but um, it sounded good to me. Yeah. And I said, like, it would bring a flow of people in. And I, I got someone who was willing to invest. And we opened the gallery and it was dedicated to emerging artists. Oh, wow. Yeah. So early artists who didn't have any clout or barely any clout and who no one knew about because for a lot of my time studying art history one of my biggest obsessions was van gogh hmm. and the way he never got the recognition he deserved yeah you know and there's someone who really empathizes with the underdog and someone who understands what feeling different is like i felt like advocating for artists who um, were often mistreated mm. was something I really wanted to do. So that's kind of how I got into um, art advisory and uh, curation. I helped a lot of artists kind of get clients without, you know, asking them for money. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, makes me sound like the most incredible business person in the world. Like, don't charge people for your services. But to me, it was more important to get these people seen and get them going rather than making money out of them. Yeah, yeah. Just basically a, a, a cash cow, as they say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that we, we kind of covered your path about how you got to where you're at. So what, what kind of difficulties do you have with your art advising and curation? that's a very good question in terms of curation it's a for me at the moment at least with the seattle nft museum i'd say it's finding a balance between unknown artists who don't have like a huge following on social media mm -hmm. and then more established artists because i do think they benefit from each other because the established artists get to see artists in a place where they have been before and they get to share their wisdom sometimes with them which is something i saw in one of our openings and i thought it was wonderful but also for the smaller artists to kind of get exposed to a wider fan base especially online and it's been really great because i've seen some of the artists i've put on these exhibitions getting more followers getting more engagement which at the end of the day means they will probably manage to make more sales. So it's a mix of that and also finding high quality art because in the NFT space, it can be a huge challenge to kind of filter through everything, you know, Yeah. because there's still a huge gap between technical ability and taste. True, um, or aesthetics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, both from the collector's end and the artist's end. So i think lots of people who are in the nft space are not always fully aware of the history of art and the art scene outside of nfts oh, right. which in a way is very refreshing you get fresh perspectives but at the same time you can get derivative work mm, true and that kind of makes it more difficult to onboard a different type of collector which many artists want yeah so i think it's kind of difficult to find a balance at least in the aspects of good art and what is considered popular in the nft space 
which there is some incidents and there is some overlap, but there's still a big variety. Sometimes really difficult to get taken seriously as a young girl. So I would apply for these positions and I did these internships and I knew these people who had taught me so much, but because I was so young and I sounded so young and I looked so young, I was like 23, 22, 23. <laughs> you know, people weren't really taking me seriously and it was a bit of a hit to my confidence. And I, I for a while, I actually considered just leaving the art world. Yeah altogether because I wasn't making any money. I wasn't being taken seriously because I kept mentioning NFTs and how they could change the art world. And, you know, people would be like, okay. So I was the NFT art girl that wanted to be a curator and also help digital artists yeah. get into the traditional art space. So for a while I got a lot of pushback. So it, it was good to finally get a title as a curator for an NFT museum, which is kind of right on the nose yeah. of everything I ever wanted. <laughs> I was going to say, and, and congratulations. Well, that kind of spills into another question that I, I thought about. So when you are interpreting art, do you, these are kind of the steps and ways that you go through yourself as a curator or as an artist or just as a viewer? Uh, you know, it started off as how I used to look at stuff to value it. Ah. And as an observer, because I was exposed to um, history of art since a really young age, it kind of became a very automatic process. And I would take all these steps to kind of look at this picture and assess it in a way and see, oh, where does this sit in the timeline of art history? Hmm. What, what movement was it in? Like, how do I relate to it? How does it relate to photography and painting and whatnot, because, you know, cropped compositions were more typical when photography became more popular. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I would kind of use these as a form of like placing myself when I was valuing an artwork because I used to do a bit of contemporary and modern art valuation back in Lisbon. And then suddenly as a curator, it's always useful to use this kind of toolkit and these steps because you look at artwork and you kind of see where they stand, like the artist and the artwork, where they stand in the stylistic and temporal timeline of art. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. No, I it got does. lost a little bit there. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Yeah, it's like where can the work fit in a timeline, not only for like time and places and like right now, because you're probably seeing a lot of works dealing with pandemic and loneliness. But yeah. also in terms of art history of like movements that came up and have come and gone. Mm -hmm. So I, that's kind of a, a yeah. A what double inspired layer. the artist as right. well, right? Right. Yeah. 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 I kind of like to see. I don't know if you ever read the book "Steal Like an Artist," which is a fantastic book by I can't remember his first name, but I know his surname is Cleon K L E O N. Okay. And he basically says that if you want to steal like an artist, you have to admire other artists and see who came before you. Yeah. And not necessarily in the same style of art. Like if you're a painter, you can be looking at photographers or sculptors or directors, but you have like this genealogical tree and you look at someone who inspires you. And then you look at like three people who inspired that person. And then suddenly you have this genealogical tree of inspirations yeah. and you can kind of see 
some of these members of this genealogic tree of inspiration in an artist's work. And when you follow some of these steps, and when you kind of really observe a work of art, you can understand and almost kind of figure out and pick who was in that genealogical tree hmm. of inspiration, if that makes sense. No, yeah, it does. It's um, a different perspective from where I kind of learned how to interpret art, basically, was through like basically a design terms, you know, with uh, mm -hmm. visual arrows and color theory uh, in and about, you know, and the use of those things and the interpretation of color. So mm -hmm. uh, it is different a different way of also uh, viewing work. And that's why I thought mm -hmm. it was pretty cool that you had that blog post because you don't really see that many kind of things where people will go, well, this is a good way of interpreting work. You got to interpret yeah. it somehow. And because uh, yeah. you know, when you think about a lot of artists will do stuff and people won't like it because they don't understand it. But if they understand the artist or if they understand the art movements, like you said, if they understand the history, yeah. they will definitely get the work. I concur. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, there was so many artists I kind of didn't really pay attention to. Like, I used to think Picasso was super overrated. And I was like, you know what, like, whatever, I, I could do that, which is a huge mistake. Don't <laughs> say that ever. Yeah, yeah. Because, and then when I started learning art history, and I learned about him and his work, I saw a torso he drew when he was 11, which was hyper realistic, like Michelangelo, pencil drawings, you know, that kind of style. And I was like, okay, so this guy had it figured out at 11. And ever since he created his own artistic language, which is something many artists can't say. Yeah, that's true. Right? So yeah. he developed so much so quickly that he just decided to go off and imagine and push and be experimental. So all of a sudden I was like, okay, I get it now. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's that appreciation for uh, the upcomings and where they were coming from. Because once again, you're like you said, yeah. history, the timeline. So I, I see where you're going. Uh, let's segue back into our favorite topic of NFTs and curating. Um, mm -hmm. How did you get involved with NFTs in your curation and art advisory and, and, and why? So I kind of, as I said, I, I was uh, working around with Sotheby's a lot and I was doing a lot of art valuation and I started also getting into crypto around that time. So 2016, I was reading a lot about Bitcoin. I was looking at crypto kitties and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. But then as I got deeper into the theory of what an NFT is, and as I was learning about provenance and all these things relating to the art world, I saw that there was an overlap that hadn't been explored. Hmm. And I saw a lot of potential in NFTs to kind of disrupt the way in which we perform payments and valuation and register provenance in the art world. Yeah. And to me, when I started looking at that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the future. This is the most exciting thing I've ever encountered in my life. Because all of a sudden there was this way in which artists were able to make money, potentially getting royalties for every secondary market sale. And whilst keeping everything decentralized and keeping the provenance easy to track and keeping the pricing very easy to look at, which would make valuation so much easier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was keeping an eye on this and I was thinking about ways in which I could be of help in bridging these two art worlds because at the time, you know, CryptoKitty is adorable, but not, um, you wouldn't think, oh my gosh, I want yeah. to frame this and put this in my house. I mean, you can. <laughs> But to me, I was like, you know what, we could bring artists into this. So 
the more connections I made with artists, the more I would think maybe they would be open to entering this crazy space. Yeah. And I started onboarding artists into the NFT space. And I was like, you know what, you guys should try this. And then I started meeting artists in the NFT space. And all of a sudden I was like, you guys, this could do really well in the traditional art world. So I started helping NFT artists to kind of get into the traditional art world. And I taught them how to kind of present themselves mm -hmm. as legitimate. And I'm doing air, air quotes. quotes. People <laughs> can't see, but legitimate artists. So I teach them how to write a press release, a catalog description, and I keep helping artists. I mean, if there are any artists listening, just send me a DM. I'll help you out. But that, <laughs> that's what I've been doing. Wow. Um, that is a very, uh, th thank you for doing that for artists, really. That, that some people won't yeah. give uh, artists the time of day. And, they, and sometimes artists just need that kind of basic information, like you said. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, sometimes it's better to hear it from a person rather than try to read it or watch it on YouTube. And, yeah. And oh my interact. gosh. Yeah. Definitely, because YouTube complicates everything as oh, well. Yeah, it like does. sometimes people explaining. Yeah. Yeah. They always do. Yeah, and make sure it, you you know weird. you ring that bell and and click on subscribe. <laughs> that's all. That's all they, they really care about. So. Yeah. Pretty crazy because you know with NFTs, and the benefit of autonomy can also be the downfall because artists yeah. are artists. They they're not marketers. They yep. they can be good at marketing, but it's not their main thing and we can't expect someone who's so passionate and so talented and so dedicated to one craft to suddenly learn another one yeah. you know and that's why people like me should be giving more time to artists and helping artists out a bit more kudos and thank you for doing that of course so do you want to talk about the show you most curated at the Seattle NFT Museum? Yeah, so that was really exciting because it was basically a show that embodied everything I've been trying to do so far in terms of bridging the traditional art world with the NFT art world. And it was just a show in which our main premise was to showcase artists whose practice predated NFTs. And oh my gosh, you had so much variety. You had digital art, you had Play-Doh art. I reckon you saw that as well. Yeah. We had 3D photography. We had Jen Stock's Dripping Cascade, which is amazing. We had Jake Fried's videos, which had like animations or they were films made out of coffee and whiteout, which is super unorthodox, but so exciting. Oh. And they are trippy. Well, I didn't realize it was done that way. Yeah, exactly. It's like the amount of labor that goes into yeah. that alone. I know. And then we had glitch art as well, which is super cool because this glitch art wasn't any glitch art. That sounded super um, <laughs> conceited, but it, it's really fantastic. <laughs> it's glitch art that is made with hand-drawn elements which, which is the added element of awesomeness to it so yes yeah. exactly and it, people have been really captivated by that oh yeah and then we we had one of my favorite artists ever which is henry mandel <laughs> whom you've interviewed he's like the best hey, he was down to earth kind of guy henry. yeah and just his story of just deciding to move out west from new york it's like well kudos right and then he's hyper intelligent and he he put so much thought into his art. Yeah, <laughs> I it's learned so that. It's so profound. I really recommend people to check Henry Mandel's art. 
fuck. Yeah, he he is. Uh, um, check it out. Definitely very interdimensional. Uh, as I, I was interviewing mm-hmm. him, it really did kind of go into the really metaphysical world kind of questioning of stuff, which I usually try yeah. to shy away from. But Henry had no yeah. fear of going there. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the outcome is so beautiful. Oh, it's so yeah. aesthetically pleasing. You first look at it and you're like, oh, that's nice. And then you understand it and you're like, oh wow, okay, got it. Yeah, and you start really as the closer you get to the work as well, I mean, as in physicality, you start seeing more and more detail come up to you. You're like, oh, wow, this is interlacing yes. of letters. This is interlacing of shapes. It, it, you exactly. can't just take it for literally for the, the surface view in terms of uh, looking at it from a distance. You got to get up close to the, those pieces. And I even would say maybe digitally as well. Yeah. So Yeah, it's a digital analog hybrid, which to me is fantastic. And it's kind of what I like seeing in this world. But it's been really great. And in this show, having a mix of really well-known artists and lesser-known ones to me was really important. And it was just really exciting because all artists were excited to be around each other, like have their work exhibited around each other. And whether they were super well-known and had like hundreds of thousands of followers or they were lesser-known ones, everyone was happy to be together because there is this sense of community in the NFT art world that is a bit lacking in the traditional art world. Yeah, that goes back to what I've said in the past about siloing. You know, you are Mm -hmm. in a profession that you are a silo, but kind of tag on what you just said about NFTs, it's that that community is really supportive of each other they've and they still are right here right now still doing that and they haven't been abandoned Mm -hmm. their fellow artist nft artist but in and like you said in the the kind of a real world i guess i don't know if you want to really call it that but they are siloed and it's it's kind of interesting when you try to approach an artist and talk about art just to talk about art at first they're a little screamish but then they open up and really will talk about art yeah and it's like well you can do that with anybody you just don't have to be siloed all the whole time but once again, yeah. it's that stereotype we have about artists being, you know, uh, suffering for their, you know, for their work and having to be alone all the time. And it's like, no, not really. You don't have yeah. to be, you know, what do you think? You the, can uh, approach them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. And, and also it's like, uh, and that's how some art movements got started because they were talking to each other about stuff, you know, so. Exactly. They would all meet up in a cafe. Yeah. And have these ideas, you know, Dali and his, oh my gosh, Dali and his, I don't even know where to start with that one. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. well, they, right. they would all speak. Well, they, it, it, they were talking to each other about their own concepts and like, yeah, man, go for it. And a lot of artists are nowadays, mm-hmm. if they want to talk about their concept, they're worried about someone's going to steal it. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, sure. Let them because they're not going to do your way of doing it. So that's, that's the thing. Yeah, You shouldn't be afraid because if they are going to steal it, they'll steal it like an artist and they'll probably just take inspiration. And I think nowadays people are really scared of being copied. Yeah. And I'd say that's not a very legitimate fear unless whatever you have would be easy to steal, if that makes sense. So what I mean by this is whether you really put in a lot of work and a lot of research and a lot of time into your craft, or if it was something that you kind of looked at some other source and you immediately copied it. Yeah, 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 there is a difference. You could tell, literally you Mm can tell. I want to ask this question. I, it, it's my uh, favorite question to ask a lot of artists and, and uh, people of all stripes that what advice would you give to your past self and to other artists? But I want to add the word for you, guidance. So what kind of guidance oh. and advice would you give other artists and people out there listening? 
I would say, oh, that's a really tricky question because I have so many pieces of advice. But as cliche as it sounds, stay true to yourself, Mm. number one. Number two, try not to let the market dictate what you make, Ah. which can be very tempting. Very tempting. Right. And don't be afraid to look at other forms of art to inform your own. It's a pretty good advice and kind of guidance. Mm -hmm. Would you apply that to yourself? Uh, Yeah. Definitely. Sorry, that that came out super high-pitched, but I, I, w- I would definitely apply that to myself. But to myself, I'd probably, and to other curators and people who work in the arts, please seek compensation for your work. Yeah. You guys, get paid. You're doing valuable work. Your work is important, even if it's just knowledge or advice. Information and knowledge are very, very valuable currencies. Yes. So don't just work for free or a really low pay. Yeah, you're more self-worth than you think. Do it, yeah. Yeah. It's not going to hurt to ask for money. You got to make a living. You got to eat, as they say. Yeah, because in the art world, the art world is notorious for underpaying people. Oh, yes. Like we're the eternal interns. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. really bad. Yeah. It, it's. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I reckon I'd say that to myself as well. And I would have probably said like, you know, invest in Ethereum immediately. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, back. I, I probably would have told my uh, past self the same thing. I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. In hindsight, it wasn't that expensive when I first found it. I was like, oh, this is I fine. know. I know. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just get it later. And just next thing I know, it's yeah. like, oh, I can't get this later. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, my gosh. There go my, there go my plans. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, and another artist advice, actually. I told you I wouldn't be able to just boil it down to one. That's fine. But I would say, <laughs> I would say, to artists who feel like their work isn't good enough or no one will like it and this i will apply to myself too just put your work out there Mm. put your put your work out there because someone will like it you know now with the internet like even if it's just one percent of the world maybe like not point five percent of the world that's still a few million yeah that is absolutely so my maths aren't very good but i reckon you'd still have like a way of making a living out of your art if you wanted to or just people who would appreciate and validate your art so even if you created art that showcases suffering people will relate and they will be moved so nothing you make will be too terrible yeah it's like you said I mean, within reason well within reason <laughs> but that's a good point you got to put it out there because how do you know it's mm-hmm. not going to be finished or how you know people are going to react to what you're trying to say exactly. with your work if you don't put it out there exactly. but i also kind of believe in doing uh, work for yourself like you said earlier it's like sometimes because yeah. i do work for myself too you know i used to show yeah. but then i kind of backed off showing and and i'm doing work for myself and i have not been even happier so yeah that's really great and i'm really happy to hear that so uh this is going to kind of wrap up the interview here but what's next for you What's next for me? I mean, right now I'm just really focused on helping out curation within the NFT space to grow and improve and being the first ever curator in the first ever um, 
physical NFT museum in the world is kind of a, a lot of pressure, but it's very exciting as well because I kind of get to meet all these extraordinary people and kind of further the art of curation within NFTs. Yeah. And kind of push through this glass wall between the traditional art world and the NFT space. So I'm kind of looking into furthering the art of NFT curation and helping bridge the traditional art world and the NFT art world. So some art advisory on the side as well. <laughs> and just a little bit of advisory on the side. That you is, um, well, wow, good luck. That is a huge task ahead of you, my friend. So good it luck is. with that. But I'll be happy to, to take help from artists and other curators. That's true, yeah, because it takes, you know, a village to raise a child, as they say, so. Absolutely. I want to say thank you for Joanna for taking the time to do the interview. If you want to learn more about her and her work, visit her website at joannacoaharaluno.com, all one word. You can also go to her Instagram page at joannacoaharaluno. It's also all one word. To see what the Seattle NFT Museum is up to, check out the website at seattlenftmuseum.com. To hear past episodes of Artbox DNV, head on over to the website at artboxdnv.com. And don't forget, Artbox DNV is on Instagram at artboxdnv. Until next time, thank you for listening.